0: Hey Icon, thanks for tuning in. Right now we're in a sermon series called Why Us, Why Here, where we explore the values and virtues of our community. Following this sermon, you'll hear a short Q&A session where Pastor Josh answers questions from the congregation. We pray this content is helpful to you. Right now you're about to hear Ben Wishel, one of our elder candidates, give today's scripture reading in 2 Corinthians 8, starting in verse 1. Thanks for listening.
1: Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that your abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is the word of the Lord. All righty. Thank you, Ben. Uh, For those of you I've not yet
2: met, my name is Josh, there we go, Um, and I serve as the lead pastor here at ICON, and uh, before we get kicked off, I just want to kind of... Um cosign again on on what we've been talking about around this spiritual trauma forum. If you live anywhere, um, there's there's many ways, unfortunately, in many places in which the church has been unhelpful and even dangerous for individuals. Um, it needs to be talked about. But specifically here in Seattle, um, where there has been many examples of abusive leadership and of domineering leadership, uh, not just from the one that we think of, but also in many other areas. We want to talk about it. And we're not doing this because it's a buzzword. We're not doing this because it's a, it's a hot topic right now, uh, but we're doing this because God calls his church to be faithful, and to be faithful in Seattle means that we talk about this. And so I, I'm so excited for tomorrow night. Uh, one of my friends, Beth Broom, she's a licensed counselor who, who specializes in trauma, um, is going to come speak. She actually, we're going to do the next weekend, but she's actually speaking at a conference then on trauma. She's, she's an expert in every form of the word, so she's going to be really helpful, and hopefully the Lord will, will meet us through it. Let's, let's pray, and we'll jump in. Father, I, I thank you for your word. I thank you that each and every week we get to, to come to, to hear from you and to see what it is that your spirit is wanting to, to do in us as a church. And so I trust today that, that anything I have to say would be carried along and made powerful for our hearts by your spirit's power and that there would be nothing in me that would, specifically on this topic, bludgeon people with guilt but there would be a deep sense of the grace of Jesus Christ. In every way that, that we have been rescued by grace, that that would create in our hearts a reflex to want to be generous, not like our city generous, not just because of charitable giving and tax deductions, but because of Christ Jesus and him crucified. Would you help us today? Where there are walls in our heart... As we talk about this sensitive topic of money, would you, would you tear those down, Lord? And would you help us by your spirit to hear and to be refined, let our hearts burn with love and joy in the gospel and have that expressed in this virtue that we're going to talk about today, that we need to embody as a faithful church here in Seattle. Give us that grace. God, would you unite your power with my weak words and bear fruit in us as a church. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, believe it or not, $7 is not enough to build a family upon. Uh, I, so my wife and I, uh, uh, Courtney, we got married in October of 2013. And something to, to know about me is that, uh, you know, early 20s Josh was not the same guy that he is today. Um, I was a, a waiter at that time at Buffalo Wild Wings, Anybody else? Yeah. Yeah. Hated it. Hated that job. Hated it. UFC. Oh my gosh. It was terrible. But I, I, I lived as a waiter and I worked as a waiter and I, I, I spent money like a waiter. And what that means is that um, you can always go to bed as a waiter with zero dollars to your name, because you know that the next day you're just gonna make a little bit more cash, right? Um, so as long as I had uh, food in my belly and uh, gas in the tank and whatever else sort of fun I wanted to have that day, it didn't matter if I went to bed with no money because I knew that I would make more the next day. It's a really, really helpful uh, financial philosophy that I would, I would encourage you toward. Um, but it, it really came to a head when my wife and I got married, now we we did premarital counseling, we, we did all that, and so we talked about money, but it didn't really hit me just how broke I was until our wedding day. Um, and after after our wedding, uh, we you know we we stopped at uh, Wendy's uh, the drive-through, of course, you know that's what you do after a wedding. You show up in your tux and your wedding dress and go through the drive thru and get some nuggets, right? <laughs> and I remember. <laughs> I remember going into that drive-thru, ordering the food, and then handing the cashier a $20 bill, getting back $7 and some change, and it hit me in that moment, this is everything I'm bringing into this marriage. This is every dollar and cent that I have to contribute to our family's financial future. (laughs) And it was really, really hard. It was really hard to come to that realization, uh, specifically because my wife is really, really good with finances, always has, part of because her story meant that her, her childhood, she was uh, basically financially independent since she was 14, so she's always been really smart with money, and she married a waiter who, who had nothing. And, uh, and, and like I said, believe it or not, that's, that's not enough money to, to build a family on. But, but the thing is, I tell that story not simply to just uh, kind of uh, share how financially irresponsible I was, but specifically to highlight what it was about me that, that made it okay for me to go, go to bed with zero dollars. What, what it was is this economic belief system that I had, a, a view of money that I had that basically revolved around nothing more than as long as I have food in my belly and immediate gratification, as long as I have what I want right now, I don't need money for tomorrow. Money was never something that I could look for, that that I could use in order to invest for the future or in order to save for the future. It was always for me to just have what I wanted in that moment. My, My economic belief system all revolved around Immediate gratification, getting what I wanted when I wanted it, no matter what the future Josh might say. All of us have a belief system around money. We, we all have these structures and this framework by which we think about money. Money's not just an object that we either do have or do not have, but it's actually this, this placeholder in a framework that we possess. And I want to ask you today, as we kick it off, what's your belief system around money? What do you think about money? What do you think about your own personal economics? Not just your buying power and your ability to invest in things, but what do you believe about money? What is it to you, and what role does it play in your life? Money reveals what we believe. And so it's important for us to not let money come in or go out without ever analyzing what our accounts reveal about our worldview. We all have a belief system in which money is a key player. And that's true personally, and that's also true culturally. Culturally. We have individual frameworks for money, but also cities and cultures have certain ways to think about money. And today, we're making a pivot in our fall sermon series. So over the last six weeks, we've talked about the values of our church, the things that God has shown in his word that a church needs to embody if it's going to be faithful. And today, we're gonna to pivot a little bit with an eye toward the city in which God has placed us and asked a question, what are some virtues that we need to embody? Not, not just values, not just saying that we're Jesus centered and we value that, that we're grace oriented, all, all those things, but what are some virtues that specifically us, Icon Church in Seattle, needs to embody if we're going to mean anything to the watching world? It, it, what are the virtues that we need? To have because the truth is this, and, and I'm going to be saying this again and again and again throughout these last four weeks. Our city, along with pretty much everyone else who's been around Christianity in the Western world, is sick and tired. It does not care what you have to say any longer. It is far more interested in what it's going to see from you. What, what, it, what are you going to embody In order for us to have a viable and vivid witness to our city, we need to talk about some virtues that we're gonna have as a church that are specific to Seattle. Not only that, but these virtues, as you'll see, they are the, in many ways, mirror opposite of some of our city's core idols. Because in order to to reach a city, I I don't know if you know this, but to reach a city, you don't just have to embody virtues, you have to reject its idolatry. You have to be the embodiment of its gospel opposite. We have to reject whatever this city is idolizing. The, the church becomes attractive not when it simply lays a Christian veneer over the idols of a city, but when it becomes the gospel opposite to its city's core idols. In other words, Jesus is always seen most clearly in juxtaposition. As our, as our life together is juxtaposed against the life of our city, We have to look different. We don't just have to say different things. We don't just have to believe different beliefs, but we have to look different. We have to truly be different. And so that's what we're talking about over these next four weeks. What are some virtues that we as a church should embody in order to be that juxtaposing witness of what the gospel can produce? And so today, as you can probably imagine from my intro and from the sermon text, we're going to talk about wealth. We're going to explore what, what Seattle holds, maybe as some core belief systems around money, and then how we as a church should look different and handle money differently. And let me just say this. I said this last week in our, in our closing thoughts, benediction type of area. Money, Christians are, are really interesting. It's, it's always been interesting that, that we, can, we can come to a church and we can let the Bible tell us what to do with our sexuality, what to do with our closest relationships, what to, who to get married to and who to not get married to, what that marriage is supposed to look like. Very private matters. But as soon as a pastor starts talking about money, it's like, whoa, you're getting a—that's a little private. Can you back off a little bit? Please don't do that this morning. O- open your hearts to hear what the Lord might have to say to us. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to demonstrate this as much as possible, but I am not here. Icon is not here. God does not exist for you to just, just to transfer your wealth from one spot over to another. That's, that's not what we're going to talk about today. We're all about discipleship here at Icon. And so we're going to, in order to be disciples... <laughs> we got to talk about every area of real life. So today, we're going to talk about money. To start it off, let's think together about how our city views money. And we'll get into the 2 Corinthians text soon. But first, let's set up kind of a, maybe a contrast to how our city thinks about it. To think about our city's economic belief system, we have to consider, in my mind, what the last 11 years has done to Seattle. In a little more than a decade, Seattle has become one of the richest cities in America. We, we are one of only three cities to exist in two categories. One of the, uh, this category of the 50 most populous cities in the nation, and the category of having a median income of $100,000 a year as a city. The only other two cities that have that are San Francisco and San Jose. And so S- Seattle... <laughs> has a median income of $100,000 a year. That means half the people make less, half the people make more. It's the, it's the middle spot. And it actually gets even more astounding when you look at one of the most common different demographics in Seattle, married couples with kids below the age of 18. So, so married couples who have kids who are under 18. The median income for that demographic is $201,000 a year. <laughs> Our city, for the most part, is a very wealthy city, and much of this wealth has come from the last ten years of, of tech. Right, we we know that about our city. Am- Amazon existed, but took off a lot in the last decade. I remember just buying books on Amazon. You remember that? Now you get groceries. I ordered brake pads off of Amazon one time. It's insane. And that, it's really taken off and, and joined that with all the other major companies in Seattle. And you get a picture of just how much economic growth has happened here. Since 2010, Seattle's GDP has expanded at an annual rate of 4.9%. 3% is considered a, a pretty good year. <laughs> but for us, 4.9. We've surpassed that year in and year out. And over that decade, the, the real GDP Of Seattle has grown by 50% in 10 years, 50% amounting to about $135 billion in added value in just a matter of 10 years. (laughs) That's insane. And for our purposes today, to talk about our city, I think that's actually the most important statistic. Because talking about money in Seattle doesn't just, doesn't uh, talking about the stats doesn't really just tell us the, the belief system around money. But when we see and consider just how much wealth has, has skyrocketed in our city, I think we can get some hints as to what type of belief system has come up because of that. These stats certainly tell us the facts of wealth, but the context in which that wealth happened in such a short amount of time, I think, can give us some clues around how our city thinks about money, what our economic belief systems are. And I want to talk about just two. First, the economic belief system in our city that this explosion of wealth has created is this. My money exist for my purposes of comfort, advancement, and ease. You see, the speed at which Seattle has grown wealthy means this. It's almost all new money. (laughs) There's not a ton of generational wealth in Seattle. Most of it has been achieved within that last decade or two. And when new money grows to, to such large proportions like it has here, there comes this, what I think is maybe a, a pressure or an instinct to expand your lifestyle at the same speed at which your new money grew. Maybe you didn't have money growing up. Maybe you were in a, a poorer family, but now that you do, you feel like you've got to make it up, with, make up for lost time with, with toys and trips and Teslas, right? Is that not a description of Seattle? Toys, trips, and Teslas. Write that down in your notes. (laughs) And from a secular perspective, this makes total sense. You, You work hard for your money, right? The vast majority of people in Seattle who have wealth are hustling for it. You work hard. Don't you deserve the fruit of your labor, you work long hours with pressures of timeline and the constant nagging sense that your coworkers are out-competing you. With, such, with an environment like that, shouldn't we take the time to rest and to restore almost exclusively through toys, trips, and Teslas? We deserve it, right? And also, not only that, but in the secular mindset, time is always running out for you to enjoy your life. In the secular mindset, which sees nothing more than the material world, there is a ticking clock on how long you can enjoy your life, because after this, there's nothing, right? That, that, that makes sense. With, with that type of worldview, money is nothing more than an accelerant to make sure you have the type of life that you would like to look back on fondly when you're 80 years old and about to croak into the abyss of nothingness. This is the belief system that that sees money as the well-deserved tool in my own personal ambitions of comfort, advancement, and ease. That's one. But another way our city views money. As money has grown in the city, especially at the speed at which it has, there becomes a problem, right? Not everyone can keep up. Not everyone can keep up with the skyrocketing cost of living in Seattle, and there's no hope for them to catch up at any point. And I think what this has created in our city, this economic gap, is self-righteous pity. (laughs) When money grows that fast in Seattle, not everyone can keep up. There's going to be people who find themselves kind of shoveling at the bottom either working, rather, working multiple jobs or, or finding that their best option is to, is to live in a tent rather than to pay $2,000 a month for a studio apartment. That, that makes sense. And this is truly a concern. This economic gap is truly a concern. It should be a concern for us as Christians, and we're going to talk about that here at the end. It's a humanity issue when people are so far down the, le- the ladder That they settle, they view their best option as living in a tent in the wettest city in America. That's a problem. However, the city's response to this issue that that, that's cropped up amounts, in in many ways, I think, to nothing more than self-righteous pity. And this can be another economic belief system in our city. You know, I'm wealthy; they are not, and I feel bad about that. Therefore, I'm going to make myself feel better about my own wealth by giving back. And that sounds kind of right, right? It sounds like that's the good option, but it's, it's not. It's the best a secular worldview can give, but it is sub-Christian. It's a, it's a cheap imitation of generosity that in the end terminates on how good we feel about our actions rather than caring about the actual person. It's a cheap imitation of generosity because the heart of it is self. It starts with the self. I feel bad that I have this money and others don't. And it ends with the self. I'll give some money away so I don't feel so guilty spending $700,000 on a two-bedroom home. That's the way, in many ways, our city views what might be called generosity. Generosity. That's an economic belief system, that there's this, econo- there's this economic gap. And many in our city who are wealthy feel bad about how wealthy they are, and they want to assuage their sense of guilt by giving back. And that sounds right, but it's sub-Christian. It's the best a secular worldview can give. What's the better option? What's the Christian belief system around money that rejects both the selfish amassing of toys, and then the selfish altruism of our city. Meet me there in the text, 2 Corinthians 8. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. The starting point for a biblical belief system around wealth is this, the grace of God. Notice that as Paul opens up this section where he's gonna discuss this this virtue of generosity, he opens it up by pointing out what he really wants to call their attention to, the grace of God that's been given to these churches of of Macedonia. You see, the, the context of this chapter is all around the distribution of wealth for the sake of uh, the church in Jerusalem. The, the Jerusalem church had fallen on some really hard times. Um, they, most of them were extremely impoverished. A lot of them had lost their livelihood because they proclaimed Jesus as Lord. And, and regional churches began to, to make some commitments to send financial aid to those in Jerusalem. And, and Paul calls out one specific set of churches in this. The Macedonian church. And why is it that he calls them out? Is it because they've done so well at budgeting that they have expendable income to give? No. Is it because they even feel sorry for the church in Jerusalem? No. It's because the grace of God is at work in them. And don't miss just how amazing of a work this, this, this grace produces. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So there's this, there's this wave of generosity that has crested within the Macedonian church. And what are the two forces that are making this wave crash down? The abundance of joy that these Christians have. They have a joy that's untouchable, and they have an abundance of it. And then the extreme poverty of their own situation. That's weird. (laughs) That's weird that those two things would come together, and what that would produce is generosity. It's almost as if the grace of God has so revolutionized the ambitions and the desires of the Macedonian church that they don't see their own poverty as a chance to to receive, but rather as a chance to scrap up everything they can, everything they have to participate in the the work of helping another church. I mean, look, look, look at the next verse. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. The Macedonian church wasn't duped or deceived. They gave of their own accord, and more than that, they demanded that their own poverty not disqualify them from the work of generosity, not leave them out of the chance to participate in helping another church. All of this is is testimony of what the grace of God does in a church. And you see, this this is where the biblical belief system around wealth and the belief system of our city really diverges and takes a different path. This is where it really turns into two different roads. You see, the, the belief system around money that our city holds starts off with entitlement, right? I earn this money, so it's there for me. And then it ends with self-righteous altruism meant to assuage the guilt of the economic gap. But in a church in which the gospel has become the true story of their lives and allows that story to reach into every part of their lives, the belief system around money starts and ends with grace. In fact, you might say that the economic belief system of a disciple of Jesus is less of a system and more of a story. We don't, we don't view money as another tool in our own economic or social mobility scheme, but instead, we view money as yet another scene in which the grace of God is being told, in which that story of the gospel is being proclaimed. It's just another part of our life in which Jesus and his grace is being rehearsed. It's not even a system. It's a story that we're living into. And that's why, that's why you, you won't see barely anything in the New Testament that commands Christians to tithe. The, the old system of, of tithing from the Old Testament centered around command, right? Right? The Levitical priesthood, they, just like every other human being, needed money in order to continue their priestly work. And so it was commanded that people give 10%. But when Jesus comes on the scene, the category of tithing doesn't just get thrown out, it gets replaced by something even better, the the heart ethic of generosity. This isn't because giving is no longer necessary for the Christian, but because the New Testament assumes that if you listen to the gospel story, no one has to tell you to be generous. The New Testament assumes that if you're paying attention, generosity will come up. You don't need a command to give. For the Christian, 10% doesn't need to be coaxed out of you by command because there's already a greater force at work in which, which is influencing how we spend our money. And that is the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. You don't, you don't need a command to give if you're paying attention. Look at where he goes in verse eight. I say this, not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is Genuine. Okay, it's, it's, it's not a command from Paul that the Corinthian church join the Macedonian church in their generous efforts. Instead, it's a test as to whether their love really corresponds with the story of the gospel. Paul doesn't need a command, he doesn't need to, to coax it out of them to participate in this work. If they are paying attention. And Paul's call here in 2 Corinthians 8 is a test as to whether they're paying attention to the gospel or not. Whether their love for the, for the church in Jerusalem corresponds to the generosity of grace in the gospel. Which is why he goes to verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became Poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. There it is. There's the story. No system, no command, only the best story that's ever been told and lived out. That Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, who bankrolls creation with his glory and power, emptied himself, embraced personal poverty for you. The son of God, whose deserved habitation is one of the the praises of angels and the seat of power. He willingly left what was entitled to him in order to give us sinners what we are the least entitled to, The generosity of Jesus is our salvation. The heart of Jesus that got him up and started to embrace poverty, coming into the world, coming as the king of glory to embrace becoming a little fetus and then a little baby, all existing in Nazareth, which is a super impoverished country or city, town, podunk town. (laughs) All of that, Jesus embracing that willingly, in order to give us salvation, in order to give us righteousness. Jesus, who who, who embraced the poverty of our sin, that we might have the riches of his righteousness, that's the story that directly influences every part of our lives, our wallets included. That's what coaxes out in our heart generosity, not command, but story, the grace of Jesus Christ, the hope that we have in him. Paul here, he, he takes the category of, of money, and he lifts it so much higher than charitable giving and money management. He hoists it up above tax deductions and budgeting tools, elevating it up with the riches of the gospel of grace. And that elevation of this topic is meant to change how we view our possessions and our money. It's meant to change. It's meant to influence and give us a new reflex rather than self-protection, rather than self-possession, giving of ourselves. Whether in time or talents or in money, whatever it is, becoming a generous people. I love how John Webster comments on this passage. I, I found this quote earlier this morning, so we don't have it. Listen very intently. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, emptied himself. He took upon himself human form, the form of a servant, and became obedient to death. Jesus's poverty is just this, his renunciation of protective self-possession. His unreserved fellowship with those who are in desperate straits, his turning to them, his utter concentration on their well-being, his giving of himself even to the point of death for the sake of their survival. He laid down his life for his friends and says, Paul, we are to do the same. He goes on, We, we echo the grace of Jesus Christ. And our generosity is heard the faint reverberation of of the one majestic act of generosity, God's own taking up of flesh, of taking up our hopeless cause, of redeeming us from poverty and darkness and death, and of sharing the treasures of his grace with us. Because he was these things and did these things, we have everything to give and we have nothing to lose. That's what the gospel story produces in us. And so let, let me ask you, let me make you uncomfortable here, like I haven't already. Is your economic belief system a reverberation of the grace of Jesus Christ? Or is it mainly there to protect your preferred lifestyle? What is your money for What is your portfolio doing for the gospel? Let me ask it this way. If if you found a stranger who knew nothing about your Christian faith, had no idea that you were a Christian, and you handed them just a sheet of paper that laid out all of your monthly expenses, would they have any clue, any hint whatsoever that there's something different about your life? Would they be able to see from that sheet of paper that your life has been upended by the riches of grace in Jesus Christ? Is the top of your Excel sheet filled with everything else our world is giving money to and with a little add-on at the bottom that in the end doesn't cost you much but makes you feel very good and assuages your conscience? Let me say it this way. If your budget could be transferred over to a secular, non-Christian family without changing a thing, that's a problem. That reveals something about where our heart is in this, as to whether we're paying attention to the gospel at all. And friends, let me tell you from personal experience, you can only run From this conviction for so long. I'm telling you that from from personal experience. For years and to my shame, I never gave a dollar to the church. I was not a generous person. I I ran from this conviction, highlighting other areas of my discipleship and downplaying this important piece. But because God loves me enough. (laughs) to pull in every area of my life under the banner of the gospel of grace. He got my money. (laughs) He got my wallet. Not because he needs my finances, but because he wants my heart. He wants my heart with zero reservations, and he wants your heart. He will not risk your heart being in proximity to what Jesus calls the deceitfulness of riches. Do you ever think about that? That Jesus identifies for us one of the main problems of wealth is how capable it is of deceiving us. That as money comes in, and more of it, and more of it, and more of it, there comes with it, without ever us seeing it, the capability to be deceived. And remember that The the highlight of deception is that none of us know it's actually happening. And Jesus says, riches will do that to your heart. Wealth has the potential to deceive you. And so we can only run from this conviction so long. Jesus loves us enough to not let us be in proximity, to to think that, that wealth can save us. He won't let us be tricked into thinking that our life is under control and and safe, which which money makes us feel that way, when in fact, the very thing you might think is elevating you on the social and economic ladder might be a millstone around your feet that's dragging you further away from the good life lived under satisfaction in God. All of of this, friends, let let me just say this. All of this requires a conversion. <laughs> In response to the grace of Jesus Christ, we must all, myself included, have our hearts converted away from what we naturally think. We must be converted away from loving what the world loves and trying to build up safety mechanisms that our world builds up, thinking that it's going to do anything to protect them. We must have our hearts converted <laughs> over to the testimony of, of grace. Generosity, this this virtue that we as a church should embody in this specific place, is nothing more than us hearing the gospel afresh, us paying attention to it, it getting its fingers into our heart enough to where this core idol of safety and of comfort and of self-possession is rested away because we see the grace of Jesus Christ who held on to nothing, like we read earlier, who did not count his place as God, a thing to be held on to, grasped at, but rather emptied himself in love. Generosity tells a greater story, and it's what our city needs to see. This is a virtue that our church should embody because again, our city is tired of hearing what we have to say and wants to see what we will do. So what will you do? Last week I I shared in our sent on mission sermon that, that you should expect to be discipled here at Icon. That's part of what it means to be sent on mission is that we're making new disciples and also growing disciples. And in this category of wealth and generosity, we want to be disciples who are being shaped and formed. And one of the ways that we can be shaped and formed is just through the opportunity to practice virtues like this. And so for today, today's topic of wealth and generosity, we do have an opportunity for you to participate in as a disciple. And let me just say, I'm going, to, I'm going to get into what it is. It should be no surprise to you that a church plant of maybe 120 people who has gone through a global pandemic and the loss of a founding pastor, the giving has gone down. We're in a safe space right now as a church. If you're a partner, hopefully you saw our financial information and we're in a good place. God has been gracious to us, but it's no surprise that there's been a dip in giving. It's steady now, but it's much way farther down than what it was. And a lot of churches take, uh, in a good way, take advantage of of end-of-year giving, right? That's when a lot of people give larger amounts so that they can have larger tax deductions and things like that. And a lot of churches, actually I know of one one church in the Seattle area that 35% of their giving comes in on the last week of the year. I would not want to be a pastor there. That sounds terrifying. And for us as a church, in this opportunity for end-of-year giving, I want us, in, in, in what ways we can, to mimic this, this church of Macedonia, who, who did not give because they had much, but, but gave regardless of how much they had. We, we want our end-of-year giving, and I'm talking about as an organization, not to just be a chance for us to, to make up the margins, but to proclaim as a church, as an organization, a better story... That Jesus Christ and his riches of grace is what influences our view of money. Not just yours personally, but ours as a church. So because of that, here's what we're going to do. For us to embody that as a church, for, from, from today all the way through the end of the year, we are going to double up all of our generous efforts as a church. Each month we give away 10% to church planting And what we want to do from now until the end of the year is give away another 10% to a specific organization here in Seattle called Union Gospel Mission. And if you know UGM, you know that they are doing the most consequential and gospel-centered work on homelessness in our entire city. They don't take a dollar of city funding or federal funding because they know that if they do, it's going to change what they have to do in their ministry, and they are an incredible organization that is actually making a difference. I, I, I'm almost out of time, I gotta hurry, but I, I went to an orientation for them a few months ago and had one of the coolest experiences. Uh, it, was, it was an orient, orientation to show uh, kind of what their process is to, to receive a homeless individual in, and then what they do in order to help, in order to, to teach, and in some ways, rehabilitate that person back into a fully functioning adult. And the orientation hadn't started yet, and it was held at a church down in south, like further south of Seattle. And before it started, that church was having a a prayer meeting that morning. It was a Saturday morning, having a prayer meeting then. Terrible planning. And and this person walks in and sees the the Union Gospel Mission banners, and he says, "'Oh, I went through your program five years ago, and, "'and it was incredibly helpful.' And it blew my mind that, that this person, who within just a matter of years was out on the streets, who came into this organization and has been so helped and so ministered to, that not only are they now not living in a tent, but they are showing up to a prayer meeting on a Saturday morning. <laughs> a prayer meeting is the hardest thing to get people to in a church. <laughs> It's the lowest attended. I can tell you from this last Wednesday when we had one. And this guy has been so discipled by UGM that he's doing that. And we as a church, even though this would be a great opportunity to take everything in and just make up the margins for what we've lost this year, we want to double up what we're giving in order for that organization to flourish and to thrive. So I would would invite you into that. Every dollar, not even just a special fund, but every dollar that comes in over the next two months, is going. another 10% of it is going to UGM. We want to be a church who, who rehearses the gospel in every area, not just in our liturgy on Sunday mornings, but in what we actually do here in this city. Because again, that's what this city needs church that can see the gospel, a church that proclaims the gospel with its life. We need to be that. So let's, let's start here. Let's pray. Father, refine our hearts with your grace. Forgive us of the, of the ways that that we've protected this little category of money because we think we have to keep ourselves safe. We think we have to provide for ourselves. We've been duped. God, give us clarity that the gospel tells us we are never alone and we are never on our own. But rather, we have a God who is generous in his grace, who bankrupts the glory of heaven by sending his son to reconcile us and to save us out of our poverty of sin. That tells us things, God. That that tells us things, Lord, about who you are. Let the story of your grace refine our hearts to, to, to pry open our fingers from what we want to possess for ourselves and make us By your spirit, a generous people in which the watching world can come in and see that these people don't just say serious things about the gospel, they live it. God, refine us, help us by your spirit embody this virtue in us, not for tax deductions or to assuage our guilt, but because the gospel of Jesus Christ is true and is the greatest hope of our life. Do that in us, and we we trust you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: You're about to hear the post-sermon Q&A with Pastor Josh. Thanks for listening. Feel free to check out our Instagram during the week for questions that we didn't have time to answer in service. Let's get to some questions.
2: First, as a clarification and reinforcement, should we view giving and generosity as a spiritual discipline? If so, how? Uh, my answer to that question would be yes, because s- spiritual disciplines, what, what do they do? They actually, they, they shape us. They're, they're practices that we give ourselves to in order to reinforce to our hearts and to our minds what the true story of the gospel is. We, we, we all, you know, many of us as Christians, we, we understand the gospel, we, we have it in our heads, but it takes a lot of work for us to actually have it invoked in our hearts. And, and spiritual disciplines are there in order for us to to kind of tell our hearts again and remind our hearts again what is actually true. And and you see this in even like the ways in which your your body can communicate to your mind and your heart. Like if you're if you're praying and, and you take a a more like more reverent stance, whether it's on your knees or on your face, it begins to communicate to your own heart what you're trying to, 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 to feel the, the, the reverence for God. And, and I think giving and generosity is in that same category that, that, that we give in order to reinforce to our hearts what is true of the gospel. We, we remember, I, I, I would hope, I would want, I would encourage that every time you go to give and you click that little button submit. Do that with the gospel in mind. Treat it like a spiritual discipline. Pray, don't, don't just click submit and then you're good to go, but pray, God, would you use this money in order to give the church the capability to share the gospel, to, to have new disciples made, to have growing disciples matured. So yeah, I, I think it's a spiritual discipline. And in terms of how, how, how should you view it, um, Confused about the maybe I already answered that, so let's we'll move to the next one, okay? Number two, the, so these are related. How can Christians remain committed to living in Seattle without storing up wealth in a city that requires significant savings to, avo- to afford even a modest home? That's a great question. And if I'm quite honest with you, that's a question that I'm working through as well. Um, you know, I, I, most of you know I, I moved from the Dallas area, um, and the cost of living from Dallas to Seattle is really, really shocking. And, um, and so I, here's what I would say. The best way that you can, you can do this without having this category of, of storing up wealth is to, one, like, if you're saving for a house, which I would encourage you to do, it's great. I can't wait until one day we can hopefully have a house, Lord. <laughs> I can't wait for that day. But the money that you're sending into that, all, like, have it very clearly earmarked that this is in order for us to have a home. And what is a home? A home is not just a secular belonging in which you go to sleep and which you eat and do these things. It is a place in which you're able to practice an even more truer form of hospitality. And so I, I would just say that. One of the best ways for you to avoid the storing up wealth type of category is to see why are you buying a home? Is it, is it there in order to be hospitable? And by the way, none of this is to be said that it's a bad thing for you to, to own things. I, I hope that that wasn't communicated. There are many people in the Bible who had very many things. Some of them were very rebuked for it. <laughs> but, but, and so in conclusion, we, we should just watch what we're doing and why we are wanting a home. Is it just, and now this is a bad thing, is it just... So that you can increase your financial portfolio. If it's just that, that's that's a different thing. It can increase your financial portfolio and be a place in which you can practice ministry and be hospitable. Next, do you have any advice or guidelines for applying the gospel truth if generosity, if generosity to long-term financial planning, like a saving in a 401k. Um, so this is a this is a great question, and I have some personal convictions around retirement as a pastor. I personally don't think pastors retire. Like my big dream is to have a retirement fund where I can go, where I can go work at like a small church when I'm 70 years old out in Roslyn or something, you know, um, and just live on my own but still minister to this congregation. So. Any advice or guidelines for applying this gospel truth in generosity to long-term financial planning? The thing is is that if you have long-term financial planning and you have a maybe a larger 401k, I would encourage you to look past how you again, how you are going to personally benefit from that. How are you going to use your retirement? Is it just going to be so that you can travel and do whatever? good things, but is it just going to be for that? Or is what you're building, is your wealth building for you an opportunity to be more mobile with the gospel, more, more hospitable, hospitable to bring people in to hear the gospel? It's, it's not around like what you're actually doing with your money. It's not about the amount of money that you have. It's about why do you want it? And what are you going to use it for? I think that if you constantly come back to that question of why and not just how much, you're going to be a lot safer and probably follow much of what the Bible says around
0: wealth. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online,